it's one thing if, if you're in a church and you have leadership and, and you've got little pockets of you know, people playing the Christian game or living in sin, living a double life or you know, introducing some you know, Joel Osteen theology or something like that, and we can kind of extinguish those fires little by little. But what do you do when your leadership is part of the problem? And that's likely what the Apostle Paul is facing here as he picks up his pen and writes to Timothy. He, remember, he's left Timothy in emphasis to be the, the, the pastor elder in charge to try to bring some of these things together. And so Paul's looking at it from the standpoint of we've got an unhealthy church and we need to fix some things. And so as we're going through this, we see, well, what were some of their challenges? From our perspective, uh, praise the Lord, I think we have a, a fairly healthy church, and that's, that's God's kindness to us. But what we can glean from a letter like this is, what are some of the things we need to look out for? What are some areas that maybe we can grow in and things we can strengthen? Or maybe some things that we haven't thought about that we're going, you know what? We thought we were doing pretty good, but this area over here needs some attention. So, so what we're really thinking of, oh, hey, thank you. Thanks, Noah. Uh, instructions for a healthy church. What, what are some things we can learn about how to be a healthy church and maintain that health? And uh, so we've talked about a number of things in the first couple chapters. And uh, so where we're at in our study is in chapter 2 at the very end in this, this thought that we must establish biblical roles in the church. Probably part of the reason that the leadership had become corrupt, if indeed that's what's going on, is that the church was not following good biblical wisdom in regard to who they put into uh, leadership roles. And, and you guys have seen this, right? Um, can, can I just tell you, being a, an elder pastor is a very dangerous role. I, I mean, there are temptations, there are struggles, there are difficulties, um, it's very easy anytime you're in leadership to um, become arrogant. Uh, it's very easy in, in leadership to misuse your power. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it, leadership is a dangerous thing, and many of you are in leadership roles in your home or maybe in your business or, or in some other venue. And, and, and that's what Paul's trying to stress in this part of our study is you've got to be really careful who you put in leadership. There needs to be an evaluation process. There needs to be a training process. And even then, those qualifications that Paul's going to list here need to be, <clears throat> need to be, uh, kept in mind even as you go along. Uh, you know, I, I've been involved, not in our church, but I've involved, been involved in some other church situations where there's somebody in leadership, and, and over time, the leadership team says, hey man, we think there's some things in your life that you need to address, and, and maybe now's a good time to step back from that leadership role and work on those things. We have to be able to have those sort of honest evaluations and honest conversations. Uh, the, the way we understand leadership in our church is that the elders that lead the church are servant leaders. Uh, they're not dictators. Uh, they're they're not um, you know kings that rule with a mighty fit. You know it, it's that the elders here are servant leaders, and and those sorts of men who are loving, leading, serving the the congregation, and, and very much uh, part of leading is saying, well, we're going to make this decision, and you just have to be okay with it. That's not good leadership. Good leadership is saying, hey, here's the challenge. Here's how we're thinking. What do you think? And in, and in conversation with biblical truth, we move toward making a decision. And, and that's a very hard way to do leadership. It can be even sluggish and, and maybe difficult at times. But, but that's what we're seeing here 
is the way uh, to really establish a healthy church is to make sure that we are getting leadership right and we're keeping those qualifications there. So if you just look back at the text with me, we've talked about the role of women and we've talked about the role of men. And then last week I, I took a little bunny trail to talk about complementarity and some of the challenges. Was that helpful just to kind of get an overview of the roles and, and why we need to be careful about, you know, abuse and critical theory, you know, abuse? The, the, the abuse thing is saying, hey, uh, biblical roles promote, promote abuse, so we need to dismantle biblical roles. Critical theory is saying, well, we don't care about the Bible at all, but all we see is a power differential. And anytime you have a power differential, you, you have potential for oppression, and oppression is bad, so we're going to obliterate traditional roles and, and rebuild them into something that we think that the minorities and the people that they judge to be uh, the oppressed are now taking over roles of power. And, and so we know those are, those are really ungodly uh, ways of dealing with things. But those are, the, those are the challenges that are pressing in on the church and pressing in on our home right now to where we need to say, no, this is what the Bible says. You're right. The, the, the biblical roles do not promote abuse. And, and, and those that are abusing in the name of biblical roles are wrong and sinful and they need to repent. And the same thing with oppression. You know, biblical roles are not designed to oppress other people. They're, they're designed to lead and serve and, and, and humbly shepherd others. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's what we see uh, in the New Testament. So, But that's what we're up against in terms of some of the cultural challenges. So when we talk about qualified men in leadership, just look back with me. Let's just review this and then we'll pick it up where we've left off. First of all, chapter 3, verse 1 is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, remember, when we, we're talking about this overseer, now, remember, you don't have all this in your notes because this is just review, okay? You'll have some of it, but not all of it. Um, aspiring to the office of elder is a good work. And, and remember, we talked about this, that there's three words in the New Testament that all point to the same office. And we see one of them here, uh, the word overseer, that's episkopos, that's where we get the, uh, the, um, the, the episcopal church, you can, you can hear that in, in the word there, that's where the English word comes from. Uh, that word just means overseer. And overseer, when, appro- when applied to the office of pastor elder, has to do with the oversight, the management that the elder team provides of the church. They're, they're caring for people, they're overseeing ministries, they're making sure people are are uh, taken care of, and, and it's, a, it's a ministry of oversight and management. There's a second word that's, that's used here. You see it on the screen there, presbuteros. That's where we get the word elder, and, uh, and that, that word is also used in the New Testament. Uh, it's, not wor- it's not used right here, uh, but uh, you see in those other passages there, Acts 20, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, uh, we see those, and the word elder, as the name implies, would refer to somebody who's more mature, probably chronologically older, but really the idea is someone who is mature in the faith. <clears throat> and then the third word, it's, it's not on here, it's the word poimane, it's just the word for shepherd. And, and literally, it's no different than the guy that hangs out with the sheep versus the guy that's on the leadership team in the church. But poimane, shepherd, emphasizes the care of the leadership team, that, that they're leading, they're shepherding, they're caring, uh, there, you know, God could have picked any word to describe that, and He didn't pick king, He didn't pick dictator, He didn't pick uh, Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin language, right? It's, it's shepherd, and, and that's the idea of how these men 
are going to lead. So overseer, that's management. Elder, that's their maturity. Shepherd, that's how they're going to care and lead. And all three of those terms are used to describe the same group of men and the same office in the church. And typically, uh, typically it's called an elder board or a pastor elder board. Okay, so that's just some review, but that, that's where we're, we're uh, aiming at here. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to be careful if a man desires the office, that's really good, but that man also has to be qualified in his character, right? And we saw a whole list of character qualities. Elders should be qualified in their character, right? It's good that they want the office, but not just anybody that wants it qualifies for it. Now, now how, just, just, let's just review here a little bit. How are you going to know um, whether a guy is qualified in his character in regard to the big old list you see there in First Timothy? How are you going to know that? Yeah, spend time with them. What's that? Do ministry with them. That's right. Take them on a sports team and see how they respond. Yeah. You know, let, let them serve in the kindergarten ministry of the church and see how patient they really are. You know, I mean, things not. But, but no, so that's what you do, right? When someone comes into the church, we think, oh man, that, that might be a, or maybe they were an elder in another church or, or maybe what, and one of the things we want to do is we want to get to know that person. We want to love them. We want to look at them in ministry. Um, sometimes people come in and they, they aspire to leadership and we say, that's great. It's a good thing, right? Paul said it's a good thing, but get involved, get in a home group. Uh, start start ministering in other ways and let us get to know you because there's an evaluation process. And then in our church, uh, w- when we think that there's a guy, we've, we've watched him for a time, we've seen him, and, and, and we're going to invite them to consider uh, a process of elder training, we actually take them through an evaluation of every single one of these things. And we talk to the man about every single qualification here. We talk to his wife about every single qualification here and just... Really look to all those uh, in detail there, okay? And you see again uh, that list there in the first part of First Timothy chapter three. So they have to. It's good that they desire the office, but they have to be qualified in their character. Thirdly, they should be qualified in their skills. And I'm telling you, that was bigger the last time I looked at it. I know that's like the 2015 line on the eye chart. I'm sorry, that's that. I, I, I kid you not. I actually made that bigger. So I don't know if my computer's doing things behind my back or not, so I'm sorry about that. But the the third thing there is elders should be qualified in their skills, right? One skill we see here in chapter 3, verse 2, is they have to be able to teach. You can be a very godly person. You can have all the maturity, all the character qualities. You can want the role of elder. But if you can't teach, then we know that that's not God's will for your life, that that you have a, a thriving ministry in some other area. Because teaching and training is one of the skills that elder pastors need to have. Also, we see the skill of managing his household well. Just if he's going to be, not again. I'm going to stand over here. Um, and uh, he has to be one who manages his own household well and because he's going to be a manager, uh, um, an overseer in the local church. And then fourth, they need to be qualified in their life experience. Paul says not a good, not a new convert, right? We don't want somebody who's a brand new Christian, even if they're a very godly person, even if um, uh, they might be older uh, in, in terms of their, uh, their age, we want them also mature in their life experience. So we don't want to do that, right? A good reputation with those outside the church. 
And then finally, if we were to look outside of this passage, we would see there needs to be additional giftedness, uh, things like teaching, leading, shepherding, appropriate theological knowledge. Um, anyway, okay, so that, that gives you an idea of, of what we're looking for in elders. And this kind of brings us up to where we left off last time. Uh, so we're going to look at a second office. Uh, we understand the Bible to teach that there are two basic leadership teams that work together in the local church. The elder pastor team, uh, they're the shepherds, they're the managers, they are the overseers, as we've seen. And then there's a second group of men that work with the elders. And these are what we call deacons. Other qualified men should pursue the office of deacon in the church. Okay? A deacon, that word means a servant, one who serves, uh, an intermediary, an agent. And uh, so let's look, let's look back at our text and read a little bit about deacons in chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must first also be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So you see some of the same qualifications there. And while, while the list of character qualities isn't quite as long as the elders, we get a lot of the same thing. So we're a sense of, we're looking for men of integrity and maturity here as well. Now you'll notice there is one qualification that's that's glaringly different in the deacons than from the elders, and it has to do with the difference in function. So look back at those lists and tell me, what's one of the main skills that's missing there in the deacon list that, that we do see in the elder list? Yeah, able to teach, right? Now, that doesn't mean deacons don't teach. In fact, you know what I love about our church? A lot of our deacons teach, and they're really good at it. Um, so, so just because you're a deacon doesn't mean, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a lousy teacher. No, no, no. It just means that that's not a necessary skill for their role. Uh, but in terms of their character qualities and whatnot, we're looking for, for very similar sort of men than as with the elders. So men of dignity, right? That means they're worthy of respect. And you know this. If, if you're going to follow somebody, it's a lot easier to follow them if you respect them, isn't it? I mean, and that's what the Bible is getting at here. We want men that are easy to follow, easy to look up to, and and let them uh, lead us and and help us. They're they're men of dignity, many men of worthy of respect. They're they're noble, they're dignified. They're not double tongued. That, that that just means they're they're not insincere. Again, if you're going to follow somebody in leadership, you want to be able to trust that that, that they're shooting straight with you, right? They're not playing games. They're not misleading you. They're not saying one thing and doing something different. And, you know, the deacons in our church, you know, the, the elders are sort of managing and shepherding and training, and the deacons work with the elders to oversee various ministries. So one of our deacons oversees a lot of the kitchen and hospitality. One of our deacons oversees the safety team. Uh, we have deacons that work um, in, in all sorts of uh, things in our church in terms of member care and follow-up and, and uh, just, just lots of different types of things. And again, if, you're, if we're going to follow them, that there needs to be a sincerity there that we know we, these are men that we can trust, they're worthy of our respect, and they're worthy of our trust as well. They're not addicted to too much wine. You want, you want us to theme here? A good leader is not addicted to something, anything, that would... 
um, distort or distract him from his main role of following Christ and leading God's people. And one of the challenges with addictions is that uh, if, if you know somebody that's maybe struggled with addiction or maybe you've struggled with addiction before, you know, one of the challenges with addiction is that addiction is a taskmaster. The, the, in fact, the, the number one way the Bible describes addiction is, is by using slavery language. You're enslaved to it. You're, you're, this is your master, and, and you have to obey. And, and, it, and if you've talked to somebody with addiction, that's the sort of language they use. It's like, it's like this power inside of me, and I, I can't overcome it. You know, I, I know it's bad for me, but I keep doing it. And, right? and that's what you see. And you can imagine if you take that dynamic, and we're not, we're not heaping shame on people like that. We want to help them. We want to encourage them. But we're just saying, you know, a leadership role is, is, is not a right fit for you if there's something else in your life that's governing what you do and why you do it. And that's exactly what happens in addiction. So we, we want to really tap the brakes and say, well, that's not, if that's going on, we want to help that person. We want to minister, care for them. Uh, but we not want to, put them in a leadership role just yet if, if that's a reality. Number four, they're not fond of sordid gain. Again, the idea of dishonest gain. We talked about that with elders. And, uh, and this is interesting. This, this is sort of a summary now, right? They're, they're holding to the mystery of faith. What, what Paul means by that is that they're continuing in faith with a clear conscience, without any hesitancies. So this is the opposite of addiction. In addiction, you've got some substance, some habit that, that, that's controlling your life, and, and, and you're trying to fight against it, right? What this is saying is you've got a man who is sold out in terms of what he believes and where he's going. He's, he's holding firm to that mystery of faith. He knows where he stands, and he stands there, Right? And that's what we're looking for in these deacons, these servant leaders who work alongside the elders to serve in the local church. And then we see this. This is where Paul started with the elders. Uh, he's beyond reproach, right? He's blameless. He's irreproachable. Uh, we don't want guys in leadership that are involved in questionable activity or questionable situations or maybe they've had something from their past that's questionable that isn't quite resolved we'd want to address all those things uh, to make sure that they are beyond reproach you guys see this right leadership is all about integrity and once and you you know this i mean if i threw out a couple political examples right now you'd know exactly what i'm talking about Right? Maybe you've got some guy in politics and you just love that person and then some scandal comes out, some thing comes out, and what happens? You go, oh, not again. Because that, that compromises our ability to trust that person, even if we like them. It, it, it compromises our ability to trust a leader. And that's why the Bible is stressing, uh, again, th- these are not perfect men. Can I just say this? These are not perfect men. We're not looking for perfection or, you know, they don't struggle. That What we're looking for is, is a benchmark of integrity. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a baseline of maturity. And, and certainly these are growing believers. These are people that struggle with sin. These are people that have areas of their life they need to grow in, just like you and me. Um, but but we're looking for overall some maturity and some character that God has been kind to establish in them. And likewise, they're husbands of one wife, just the same as what we talked about with the elders, a, a one-woman man. There's integrity and faithfulness and fidelity in their marriage. 
And finally, they're good managers of children. Deacons serve as managers, similar to the way elders do, but in different realms. So we're looking at their family and saying, hey, are they able to kind of handle management there? And that gives us a confidence that they can manage well in the local church. Okay, questions on that? Does that make sense? So we're looking for deacons, servant leaders, qualified in their character, qualified in their abilities there. Now, yes? Right. Well, Paul's writing and explaining the criteria that they ought to use. What criteria, other than maybe what Jethro said to Moses yeah. about Jesus, and maybe God bearing and trustworthy, yeah. what, what kind of criteria would they have typically used from a Jewish background? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, what, what would they have used? And, and you know, honestly, we don't know. And, and maybe that was part of the problem is... Um, you know, when, so the question is, what criteria would this early church have used in the absence of Paul's instructions here? And that, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. And that's, that's why the New Testament is so interesting because the church is brand new. And, and they're, they're building it literally from the ground up. And there's not an owner's manual yet. So Paul's writing these New Testament letters to create the owner's manual. I think, yeah, Jethro with Moses would be an example. I, I think you, you learn a lot. Probably, well, let me ask you this. Let's do this before I tell you what I think. Where would you, if all you had was an Old Testament, where would you go to get an idea of leadership and management and, and caring for people? Where would you go? I heard David. Okay, so David certainly had some character qualities. Yeah, Hans? Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah was a, a, a great example of servant leader. So maybe some character studies. Uh, certainly not everything David did was commendable, but there's some good leadership qualities. Certainly Nehemiah was a leader. Okay, so that'd be good. Where else would you go? Yeah, Joan? Proverbs was what I was thinking, because Proverbs is the one sort of, um, if we're studying Nehemiah or David, those are good, and we, we, can, we can pull some ideas there, but, we're all, but, but those are not, um, those are not uh, directive, meaning it's an example, but it's not instructions. It's not do this, don't do that, whereas Proverbs is exactly that. Proverbs is saying, you want to be wise, do this, don't do that. You want to have maturity, do this, don't do that. So I would think Proverbs is probably... And it's interesting, and I didn't even think about this until you asked the question. You go back and you look at that list, and you see warnings against alcohol, Proverbs 23. You see uh, all sorts of ideas about what it means to live with integrity and honesty. Okay, we see that there. We see about how do you care for people. We see that in Proverbs. So there's a lot of crossover. So maybe Paul was doing his devotions in Proverbs that morning in his Tanakh, and uh, that's where he got some of it. I don't know, but... um, and, and, and certainly the life of the Lord Jesus, which Paul would have been uh, acquainted with as well. But that's, that's a fascinating question, Carl. And I don't know a good answer, but, but maybe those are some ideas. So what would you say? Well, one of the things would be in the line of prophets, for instance, where you know, God is sitting there and he's, he's saying over and over again, you're doing these things, mm-hmm. taking advantage of yep. people, you're not taking care of the widows and yeah. the you're all these different things that he hated. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, very good. Yeah, the minor prophets. One of the themes of the minor prophets, uh, I think like Amos and, and some of the other, uh, uh, a couple others that really go after corrupt leaders, where the shepherds were corrupt, right? And God's, through the prophet, is bringing a corrective to the, the corrupt uh, kings and whatnot. So very good. Okay.
I look, see, that's why I love doing class with you guys. This is excellent. We're learning. We're learning. We're growing here. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Um, so all these men, verse 10, must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So um, there's a, a season of identification, maybe a season of training, but then there's also a season of evaluation. And again, in our church, the way we've taken these instructions and tried to turn them into um, a process is uh, we, we really have a, a, a threefold process in terms of leaders, uh, elders and deacons here. One is just sort of identification. You know, we'll, we'll meet somebody. We just kind of keep an eye on them, maybe encourage them to get involved in some ministries. Uh, second is a, a, an intensive evaluation and training time. Uh, and then the third piece, of course, is, is we bring them before all of you. We bring them before the whole church and we say, hey, we think this this man is is worthy of the office. We've We've walked with him, we've tested him, we've talked to him, we've evaluated his character and his, his theological understanding and his skill set in ministry, and we think this is the type of guy that God might have to be an elder or a deacon. Then we bring them before you guys, and, and you guys say, yeah, amen. And you, you, or you say, oh, no, there's something you don't know about. Let me come talk to you. And, and, and that's, that's a good reminder, too, that this is a whole church process. So our Constitution requires that that man's name goes into the bulletin and, and is on a... Um, uh, a formal called member meeting, and that's just not a technicality. That, that's because we want the input of the whole church when it comes to looking at this list and knowing what we know about the person and, and whatnot. So they need to be examined and tested first. Now, watch, watch this. Look at verse 11. Women must likewise be... I, I thought women weren't allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. Well, that's right. That's true. So, so uh, an elder role would not be appropriate because elders lead and teach. But that doesn't mean women don't serve in important roles in a local church. And right here we see that because Paul's going to say women, likewise, <clears throat> must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Uh, then he comes back to deacons again. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here's a $100 question. Why does Paul put a couple of lines on women sandwiched between his two explanations of what deacons do? And I think the answer is Paul intended, and thus we should as well, think about women who assist deacons in their roles in serving in the church. Now, historically, let me, let me just tell you this. Historically, uh, as people look at this passage, they say, okay, well, well some churches, like, like John MacArthur's church, for example, they have elders, they have deacons, and they have deaconesses, girl deacons. Um, and deaconesses, girl deacons, uh, same qualifications, right? We see the list there, and, and they assume roles of serving in the church that are appropriate, and uh, so that's how they interpret it. Um, uh, other interpreters are going to say these are the wives of deacons, right? And they have to be qualified. Um, I, I think the way that we've thought about it in, in our church is just to say uh, it's not a formal office like deaconess, although there's nothing wrong with that, but that we, we want to identify and put into service qualified godly women in our church. 
And they may not have a title of deacon or elder, but, but they're serving in important roles. And I think about people uh, in our church right now. I, I look at some of you, right, that, that lead in Awana and women's ministry, and, and you, you're involved in home groups, and you, you mentor women. And uh, we have uh, two very, very wonderful ladies that serve us in our, our secretarial role and our administrative assistant role. And they're like, yes, Pastor Terry, they're like the, the backbone of why things don't fall apart here every week because Nancy and Lacey do such a good job uh, every week doing that. We have nursery coordinators and nursery helpers and right, and, and all these things going on. And, and so that, that's where we're saying women have an important role to play in the church, assisting deacons and assisting in other ministries. And they should be qualified as well. Look at this. They're to be dignified also, uh, to be serious, to be noble, to be easy to respect. They're not malicious gossips or slanderers. Um, th- this is an area where, again, if you're going to trust somebody in a leadership role, if you're going to trust them, you have to believe that they're not going to share things they know about you inappropriately. They're not going to use that information in a gossipy way. That's not going to come back to hurt you. I mean, you know, if you start talking to somebody about personal stuff and you're not confident that that information is going to be guarded and and used carefully, you're not going to talk to them, are you? You're going to be real superficial, real real cautious about what you say. So so this gossip thing is really important uh, for leaders in the local church. I mean, uh, Paul is thinking specifically here for women, but the reality is both men and women need to be really careful about who we share information with and, and how we share it. Notice this, they're, they're temperate. That's sober. That's self-controlled. And, and again, that, that comes back to that same idea. They're not addicted. They're not... Um, that there's not something else that's really ruling their life. That they're, they're not looking to other things other than Jesus to cope with the challenges of life. So they're sober. They're self-controlled. They're faithful in all things. The idea of being trustworthy. This is somebody worthy of my trust. Someone that, that I can, I believe is gonna do what's right and, and, and therefore they're much easier to follow. Okay, so we've got the elder pastor team, and they shepherd and lead, and they're sort of the they're sort of the global leadership of the church. Then you have the deacons; those are qualified men that work with the elders. Uh, whereas the elders are 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 focused mainly on things like uh, training and teaching and counseling and shepherding. The deacons are looking at uh, servant roles, right? They're, they're doing more in administration. They're, they're doing more logistics. They're, they're doing more coordination type of work, right? You remember, uh, one of the, we didn't, we didn't go there, but, uh, there's a passage in the book of Acts where, you know, the, the apostles were really being distracted from their ministry of the word and prayer because there were some people that were needing food in the local church. And so they were having to come away from that ministry and, and, uh, at that point, uh, they said, you know what, we, we, need, we need another team to take care of those practical needs in the church so that the elders, the, the apostles, can focus on their work. And that's where probably historically the idea of deacons came from. And then we have a team of women that, that work in all sorts of capacities. They don't necessarily have a formal title, uh, but these are women of, of maturity and respectfulness and, and uh, self-control and trustworthiness. And then they're working at all levels in the church, working with the deacons and serving in different capacities. And uh, can I just say, I, I, I think we've got a really great team here. I really do. 
I mean, just looking around at all of you, and we're going to go next door. I mean, all of you are so kind and so faithful to lead and to serve and to be involved. And um, I think that's why, under God's kind hand, our church is fairly healthy, is that all of us get it, and and not perfectly, but 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 faithfully and and with growing uh, uh, effort, we're, we're trying to serve and be what God calls us to be. Um, why can a church our size put on a CBCD conference every fall? Uh, why can we have uh, one of the most um, explosive and popular Awana ministries in Hood County? Why do we do it? I think it's because everybody shows up. <laughs> we all love to serve, and we all know we have a role, and... And uh, we all have different giftedness, and we're using those gifts. And that, that it, guys, it's amazing what, under God's kind hand, we can do in terms of ministerial work if we all just know what our role is and engage in it faithfully. And that, that's the vision of the healthy church here. Paul's saying, this is how it's going to work in terms of leadership and servanthood. Okay, let's turn the corner here and look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Now stop right there. That's probably one of the verses in the whole letter that allows us to see why was Paul writing this. So, so look back at the text there and tell me, why is he writing this letter? What do you see there? Yeah, he, might, he might be delayed, right? He said, I'm, I'm going to come to you, but I might be delayed. And in case I'm delayed, what do I want you to do? You need to know these things. Why? Because you're the church. Yeah, look at this. He says, you need to know these things so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's why he's writing. So that we know how we ought to conduct ourselves. Think of and I don't want to be critical here, think of all the different ways people do church. I mean, if we were to just jump in a bus and go from church to church, spend five, ten minutes in each of the church services in Hood County or Fort Worth or wherever, we would not see the same thing, would we? We we, we would see weird things. We would see very loud things. We, We might discover entertainment sort of thing. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to say there's a wide variety in what churches do. And we go, well, how do we know what to do? Well, we got to read the book. And while there's certainly creativity that I think God allows for within that schematic, I'm going to say this, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think we have the freedom to just do whatever seems best to us in the church. I don't think we have that freedom. I think God directs us in passages like this to say, this is what the church is, this is what you ought to do, here's what the leader should be like, here's what the servant should be like, and here's the goal. And, and, and while, again, I think there's great creativity and freedom that we can enjoy within those boundaries, we do not have unlimited freedom to just make the church whatever we want it to be. And um, that's actually kind of refreshing, I think, to just say, well... You know, you caught us, right? We're just trying to do what the master tells us to do and be faithful in that. So, saw hands. Is that Rusty? Is that your hand? Yeah. To me, 
That's right. Yep. Yeah, you go back to one five. The goal of our instruction, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That is the mission statement. The goal of our instruction is love, right? From a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Yeah. And that, when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that is true. Because at the end of the day, you want to simplify why are we here? To love God and love neighbor. That's it. And these instructions of how we set up the local church and do the local church are designed to do that, right? To point to love God and to love neighbor. And, and, and this is why he's writing, so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Now look back at the text, because this is profound. Verse, four, verse 15, uh, you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, look at this, which is the church of the, what does it say? The living God. We are a family of the living God. We are the um, ambassadors for the living God. We do ministry in the name of a living God. And that ought to direct us. That ought to guide us. We, we don't just do whatever we, what seems right to us, right? That's called judges. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. We don't want to do that. We want to take our commission from the living God himself and pour everything out in our lives to accomplish that mission for his glory or till he comes. That's why we're here. So we want to intentionally run the church in a biblical way. So let's look at this. Why should we run the church biblically? Because it's made up of the household of God. Every single one of us here is, if you're a Christian, you belong in the family of God. You've been adopted into that family. You're a part of the bride of Christ. You're redeemed. You're saved. And what that means is how we treat one another ought to be really, really careful and special. Because we're not just hanging out because we're friends. We're ministering to one another, knowing that we are a part of God's family. And you know how this is. You remember when your kids were little? And, and they came home from like fourth grade or, or maybe the soccer team or maybe their first job. And they got picked on a little bit. They got bullied a little bit. How do you feel as a parent? You can't do that to my kid, right? You know, no, that's my kid. You don't, you don't mistreat my kid. And, and again, you know, that, that's a horrible analogy, Pastor Keith. But, you know, this is the household of the living God. We don't want to mistreat God's children by how we care for each other, how we minister to each other, how we run the church, how we work together. It's made up of the household of God. It's the church of the living God. I stressed that a moment ago. This is not God that sets it up and walks off the stage. This is the God that's ruling and reigning today. He's holding all atoms together. He's doing all things by the great power of his word. And he's accomplishing his purposes, and he's accomplishing his purposes through us. And so we want to get that right. It's the pillar and support of the truth. Look at verse 15 again. The church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, here's the challenge again, right? If our leadership is corrupt, if we're not using our gifts, if we're distracted by entertaining and, and, and worldliness, and, and that's the sort of church we have, how is a lost world ever going to hear the truth of the gospel? If the church is supposed to be the tower 
with the billboard that says, Broken people, I have good news for you. Jesus came and lived and died and you can be reconciled to him. If we're supposed to be that, that billboard for truth, that advertisement for truth, how are we going to be faithful to do that if, if we're not a healthy church? See, the mission to go into all the world and make disciples, to, to be the pillar and support of the truth, that mission depends on the health of our family right here. Doesn't it? Um, who, we talked about this last week. Where is a broken, lost, sinful world going to have any idea of what a marriage is supposed to look like if our marriages aren't growing to be like Christ and the church, the way the Bible says it should be? Where, where is a corrupt, sinful, lost, confused world going to understand what biblical gender is if in this body we're not displaying biblical masculinity, meaning we have men of God, and biblical femininity, meaning we have women that are flourishing in their role that God has given them. Where's the world going to see that anywhere else if it's not us? Where is the world going to understand what it's like to have a family, to shepherd children, to, to, to know what the home looks like? Where are they going to know what integrity at the workplace, what a Christian work ethic looks like? Where are they going to find that if it's not the church? Where, where is the world going to know what real love is? It's not what I feel. It's not my current emotional state. It's a commitment to treat them the way God intended for them to treat them. And that's real love. You see, just on and on and on. We are the pillar and support of the truth. And our effectiveness in our mission is contingent on our health as a local church. And I think that's why Paul's spending all this time on this, just to make that clear. Okay? And it's established, look at this, by a common confession. Look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, now look at this. In your Bible, is that sort of indented? Do you know why that is? Any ideas? Some of you are looking at your MacArthur footnotes. You can do that if you want to. Uh, what's that? It's a creed or a hymn, maybe. This was an early church confessional, probably. Now, look at this. He who was revealed in the flesh, who's that? That's Jesus, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What's that a summary of? The life and ministry of Jesus. And so as this brand new church is forming, right? Jesus goes back to heaven about, what, 33 A.D.? Uh, Paul's writing uh, these letters in the 50s and 60s mainly of that first century. And this was likely a little creed that that early church came up with that encapsulated in a very concise form the life and ministry of Jesus. So what's he saying? Run the church biblically because it's made up of the household of God. It's the church of the living God. We're the pillar and support of the truth. And it's established by a common confession, a common confession that rests on what? The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. That's where we stand. We, we do not have the, the novelty or freedom to change the foundation or change the mission. We stand on the common confession of the person and work of Christ. Okay, now what I want you to do 
is your, are you reading through this letter? Ten minutes maybe max to read through the whole letter. Keep reading through the letter. And this week I want you to focus on chapter 4. Chapter 4 is one of the most important chapters that we're going to look at in this letter. It starts off with some warnings and it leads to some really, really great resolutions about how we can grow in health. So uh, if you want to look that over and then uh, we'll come back next week and jump into chapter 4. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for these verses that remind us uh, of your kindness in establishing the local church and the mission that you've given us and the program for leadership that you have prescribed. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom and grace to be a healthy church, to grow in our health. Thank you, Lord, that uh, by by our estimations, uh, you have been kind and things are good. Uh, Help us to excel still more and help us to be on guard uh, of these things that we might continue in health and continue in maturity and and most importantly, Lord, to be uh, effective witnesses in our community and around the world. Lord, remind us that we are the pillar and support of the truth and that should shape everything that we do. Uh, Just work in our hearts that, that that might really move us in what we do this week and how we spend our time and how we prioritize things, that we would be faithful to you until you come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.